2: Hi guys, Sam Willis here. Now, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about a new competition we're running to win a signed copy of one of our series books. We've got books on World War II, the Romans, the Tudors and the Vikings. We know there are many, many thousands of you out there listening to our podcasts and we want you to tell us on social media what you're doing and where you are whilst listening. We want to see all the beautiful places or ordinary jobs or wacky things you're doing whilst listening. Either send a photo or just describe where you are and what you're doing and we'll draw a random winner. But remember, to qualify for the competition, you have to tag us in your post and add our webpage, historiesoftheunexpected.com. Whether it's Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, But if you do let your followers know that you're listening to us and enjoying it, we'll enter you into our competition for a signed book. Thanks everyone and good luck. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, I mean simply everything you could possibly think of, has its own history, like armpits, puzzles and armchairs.
3: Or, greet, meet and fleet. And here I mean fleet of foot, of course, so it's the history of nimbleness. Or, cotton, rotten and hot on the heels. Oh, I love that bit. I love that bit. Didn't quite work. But it's all about the history of chasing. It's all about the history of races. And as always, we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of break-ins is in fact all about Viking power and identity. It is literally about smashing into Viking graves. Or that the history of playing chicken is all about the Cuban Missile Crisis. And that was one of our recent episodes in our Homeschooling History series.
2: It was great, and I really enjoyed the other examples of playing chicken we came up with, and it made me want to do a few more of them. So I think we might come back to that. Excellent. Definitely. Cowardice. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, the man not sitting opposite me because we're the other end of town. We live in Exeter, but we're not together in my recording shed. Let's just say that if history was a flag, he would wave it. If history was a lamppost, he would climb it. If history was a pint, he would drink it. It is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello,
3: James. Hello, Sam. Uh, How are you? Are you well? Really good, Excellent. And the man not sitting opposite me because blah, 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 lockdown and all that. Well, let's just say if he were a famous historical pen, then he would be a Parker 51. The type of pen (laughs) that Eisenhower used to sign the German surrender on the 7th of May, 1945. Yes, indeed, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. It is the famous historical adventurer himself, Dr. Sam Willis. Hello everyone.
2: Hello and hello James. Hello. Today um, we are doing a VE Day special which we're very much looking forward to. We did did a special on the the D-Day invasions. We certainly did
3: and we were supposed to be doing a live special today uh, at the wonderful Shelley Theatre in Bournemouth and hello to everyone there. Uh, Sorry that we can't Mm. be with you today. We will be back in the autumn, we're programmed in for the autumn, uh, but in lieu of that, what we thought we would do is we would do a special VE Day episode, since it is the 75th anniversary of the end of World War Two in Europe, this very weekend, or this very Friday. It is...
2: It is. And let's just say at the beginning, what we tend to do is two different things on our podcast. The first is we take an unexpected historical subject, which might be like, uh, I don't know, siblings. We did one on siblings recently, which was really interesting. Or we take a very well-known historical topic and we see if we can come at it from unexpected directions. So today, VE Day itself is not an unexpected topic. It's the opposite of that because everyone's celebrating it. But James and I very much hope that we can look at it from um, unusual perspectives and then offer everyone... um, new new insights into the past by taking, taking a sideways look at it.
3: Yes, excellent. And uh, I think one of the starting places for this is disagreement. So, for example, there isn't just one VE day, but in fact, you could, if you were being uber pedantic, you could argue that in fact there were three VE days because the Allied powers couldn't agree on when they were going to announce the ceasefire. So in effect, you have three VE days. The first is on the 7th, when the German generals officially deliver their official surrender at the Allied headquarters in Reims in northern France in the early hours. The problem then is about how you communicate that, because The Russians wanted to do it themselves in their own way. And Truman from the United States felt that basically they should be allowed to do this. Churchill didn't agree. But then what happens is they go backwards and forwards between each other. And then uh, an American journalist picks it up, spills the beans. And then that evening on the 7th, Churchill announces it. that VE Day is going to be the very next day on the 8th. And then the Russians have their own surrender shortly after midnight on the 9th of May. So there you have it. You have the 7th, which is when it was actually signed. You have the 8th when it was celebrated in the West and all the sort of parades and everything in London. And then the 9th when it's finally celebrated in the Soviet Union and the USSR.
2: Yeah, so that's, I mean, on the one hand, it's about disagreement, but it's um, it's specifically about the disagreement over dates, which yes. is itself interesting. And that does have a very long and fascinating history. It reminds me of that very famous book I was given as a child called 1066 and
3: all that. Did you have, did you have a copy of that? I, I have a copy of it on my desk as we speak. Yes,
2: <laughs> I, I do as well. <laughs> really, really weirdly. Um, uh, uh so anyway, the point about this book, I'll get to it here hang on in a minute, is that um, it's everyone knows the main title, 1066 and all that, but there's a subtitle um, which few people know. And the subtitle is all the parts you can remember, including 103 good things... Five bad kings yes. and two genuine dates. Yes. <laughs> exclamation <laughs> well, mark! There are d- only two genuine dates. And, and I suppose their point's excellent, isn't it? It's when you start to look closely, even the dates when many important things happen start to become really very shaky indeed. Um, I've, I can't remember what his, what the, um, the actual genuine dates are. I think is one is the Caesar's invasion and the other one is probably the Battle of Hastings, 1066. That's
3: what I'm thinking. I'm thinking maybe, but even there, I imagine the <laughs> historians disagree with it. Timekeeping yeah. was so inaccurate.
2: <laughs> mm. So confusion over dates. But the point is, I suppose, with something as massive as the Second World War, you know, it, it, it happened between 39 and forty-five hundred million 100 million people directly involved. Um, you've got so many of the people being murdered. You've got um, the, the the scope of it geographically as well. So it's fought on mainland Europe, throughout Asia, Africa, and the Far East, in the Med, Middle East, the Pacific, the Atlantic. It goes on and on. And also, you know, the, the types of places it was fought in cities, villages, deserts, mountains, jungles, and it goes on and on and on. And this means there are so many different ways you can think about it as a historian. And and primarily, and particularly, of course, you've got You you can think of it outside of the main operational theatres. So it's not just about the people doing the fighting on the front line. You've got everything that happened on the home front, whether it's air raid wardens administering first aid or mothers mending and making do improvising family meals or people doing the gardening, whatever it might be. There's a, a huge variety of Um, Places you can start as a historian. Are you interested in children? Are you interested in women? Are you interested in Jewish people? Are you interested in Germans? Are you interested in Russians? Whatever it might be. And so. It's, it is really good fodder for Histories of the Unexpected because you can, you can basically think of anything. It was like normal life carried on as well for all through those years, as well as the fighting. And with our very principle that everything has a history, you can basically apply it to all of the things we've done, whether it might be balconies. we just done one balconies. It might be soap. We just went on soap. You can apply that to the specifics of the Second World War. And what's fascinating about it is that you will probably get a unique take on any one of those things.
3: Yes, absolutely. It's such a fascinating topic. And also VE Day itself, you can look at it from all of those perspectives. So we might, for example, picking you up on the idea of children, we might think about how we recover the experiences of children and their memories of VE Day. And you can do this in a whole range of ways. The first thing that I did... Uh, knowing that we were going to be recording about VE Day, was I called up my father. And my father was born yeah. during the Second World War. He was born in 1942 in Cardiff. His father was away fighting. His mother was um, behind. And he remembers in on VE Day, on the 8th of May 1945... Being with his maternal grandmother. And he says um, he, they went out into Cardiff and they danced around a bonfire singing Yay Yay Yippie Yippie Yai. Uh, and for weeks afterwards he remembers building bonfires out of chairs and clothes horses in the scullery in order to reenact that night. And he must have been about three at that point. But it's something that absolutely stayed with him. And I think he, he's sort of slightly fuzzy on some of the details because he was so young, but he imagines that actually what he was experiencing was the street parties, people dragging out bits of old furniture into the street to create bonfires. But at the same time, he was there with his grandmother. His mother was elsewhere. His father was in Bremen after a very bloody campaign uh, with the 42nd Lowland Division. He was fortunately still alive, unlike many of the people who went in and spearheaded that operation. But nonetheless, this was something that was very mixed emotions. For a young boy, you know, he was experiencing the the jubilation and the celebration and the bonfires, but at the same time, other things weren't there. You know, his parents, his parents weren't around, and I imagine... You know, particularly in his grandmother, there's still a a worry and concern about the family. So you can think about reconstructing the history from a child's perspective through oral histories. And there have been all sorts of projects over the years to recover the memories of this very important generation before people die out. The BBC did a very good series a while ago, and there's all sorts of materials still online. Local history societies have done all sorts of things. I came across something yesterday of several Worcestershire residents who were interviewed about their recollections of World War II, and this was a project run by the Hereford and Worcester Record Office. And there are several extracts of people who were children during that time. I mean, the thing is that if you it's actually probably much easier to get at children's perspectives nowadays because people who were children at that time now survive as adults and can be interviewed about it. There's one woman who was called Diana. They name her as Diana here, who was a child during the war. And she was part of celebrations in her street in Croydon and and describes joining crowds in Trafalgar Square. And she records VE Day. We did have a celebration and a street party on VE Day. And there were a lot of flags and somehow or other, there were a lot of people in red, white and blue of some sort or other. But of course, the Conjurer had to do his bit for VE Day celebrations in the street. And a lot of friends have been out collecting salvage and being in the concerts. We were all friends together. So we had a wonderful time. And then um, I went with a group of other young people up to Trafalgar Square on the train to Trafalgar Square to see the celebrations then, which were very spectacular. My memory mostly is about how many people there were and the pushing and shoving and how you couldn't get to see things you would like to have seen and how packed Trafalgar Square was, but it was a very exciting time. Another teenager called Betty, living in South Yorkshire, recalled her VE day I can't remember anybody organising it, but there was just just going to be a party. And everybody brought out trestle tables or any old tables they had. All the women baked. Everybody bought what they could, lemonade, or I mean, there was a very little alcohol, if any. I mean, alcohol was, I think, quite difficult to get hold of. Possibly there was, and I might not have possibly known about it. But otherwise, it was just... Great big tables full of food and balloons and paper hats. Anything you could get and think that they were made their own decorations and we just had a marvellous time and then we dragged a piano out and played because they did. I mean, everybody, parlours had pianos in, people could play and everybody danced and it was glorious, it was gorgeous. Then you can think about not only those oral histories, but you think about how people look back in a very nostalgic way on the past How and memory is a very sort of slippery thing so you have to be very careful in how you treat some of those recollections but I think if you read with attention to that those implicit problems that are inherent in oral history you can still glean quite a lot about what went on. The other major source that we have is photographs. Uh, from the period and if you look at the Imperial War Museum collection there are all sorts of photographs and if you look at those photographs with a filter on for children's experience you can pull up all sorts of things so you have these pictures from around the country uh, in in the the United Kingdom in Britain uh, with street parties and exactly as they as were described in those oral histories these long trestle tables going down the middle of the road with bunting with feasting and and food and merriment and people obviously enjoying themselves but also look at it for where the children are what the children are doing and there's a lovely little picture of two children that i found VE day London 8th of May 1945 and it's in the um it's in the Imperial War Museum the catalogue number is HU 49414 so that's HU 49414 if you want to go and have a look at it it's a beautiful little picture and it depicts two small girls in the rubble at Battersea snapped by an anonymous american photographer and the two of them are holding union jacks so they're obviously part of the celebrations but they're they look to me aged about 18 months and 3 yeah, you know, so maybe two sisters here experiencing the the war, and it's quite difficult to get to that sort of, you know, to that sort of level of of detail about about how children might have experienced the war. Um, you've got to think about how people remembering that as adults. You know, my father's in his in his seventies now, his mid seventies, and how you know how readily you remember that period how you think about it in particular ways how can you how can you recover actually what you felt at the time you can you can recover the sort of broad brushstroke there were bonfires there was this that and the other but how do you get at a child's actual feelings and emotions about that time what were they actually experiencing so there we are there's one particular lens on ve day
1: That's stamps.com. Code Program
2: Yeah, fantastic. Absolutely fascinating. I we've been looking at um a lot of the footage um, which survives from V E Day, and it's made me think about a few things. Primarily I looked at um, the the amazing footage of Churchill giving his speech from the balcony of um, a huge building in Whitehall with, with masses, masses of crowds. And I looked at this a couple of weeks ago for our podcast on balconies, which was inspired by everyone doing crazy stuff on their balconies in in lockdown. And um, and I, I looked at how Hitler used his balcony, how Mussolini used the balcony and how Churchill used the balcony for public speech, for going out into into public, for basically controlling their um, their public appearance. And Churchill's ones really got me kind of thinking, because it made me think about what Churchill was, was up to on that day and how he was coping with it all. So you've got to try and not be distracted by all of the crowds. There's a great deal of skipping and conga lines when it gets dark. There's, everyone's absolutely plastered. There's a lot of singing and climbing up lampposts and splashing in fountains. Um, but Churchill's, he, he, he's going through a really difficult time in his life. He's massively worried about what's going to happen in Russia primarily. He's, he's overcome with it, with a huge burden of, of, of what's happening next. And, and just to sort of bear in mind what does actually happen next, um, you've got a whole load of wars that come out of the Second World War. You've got a war in Korea in 1945, Vietnam in 1945, Indonesia in 1945, Iran in 1945. Those are all the same year as VE Day. The Philippines the year after, Greece the year after as well. Then Romania in 47, India in 47, Palestine in 47. In 48, you've got Czechoslovakia and another war in Burma. And some of these wars have not um, been resolved at all, you know, least of all the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So there's a great deal going on in Churchill's head and he's struggling to cope with it. He, He writes in his diary about having to be carried upstairs. His meetings have become very long and very rambly. He's basically become a massive pain in the arse, I think, James, the phrase is, for his, for his party. It's a technical phrase, um, that. Was, it's a technical phrase. He was, he was phrase. Um, during the war, he was a figurehead who was making these amazing speeches, he was very inspirational, but he, he'd rapidly become a political liability and a, and a really massive pain in the arse. And if you think also about what he's actually had to do on that day, it makes you realise the kind of stress this guy's under. He has lunch with the king, he um, does uh, uh, the victory broadcast at 3pm, he then repeats the statement to the Commons at 3.30, he then leads MPs to St Margaret's Church for a service of Thanksgiving, he returns to the smoking room... Um, the War Cabinet and Chiefs of Staff then go back to Buckingham Palace for royal congratulations. He then speaks to the vast crowd I was talking about outside Whitehall. He then dines with his daughters. He then makes another speech to the Whitehall crowd. He then goes back to Downing Street to read the morning papers to be prepared to cope with tomorrow. And the point of all of this, I think, is realising the stress that Churchill was under, but also realising the importance that he had created in himself, by the type of leader he'd been. And so VE Day has happened. The the documents have been signed in northern France. They were then signed again in Berlin because Stalin was cross about them being signed in northern France. And it was almost as if, I think, that the British public don't quite accept that it's happened yet until Churchill's told them it's ended. They need this figurehead to actually tell them that the war has ended. So although the signature has been made, maybe we'll talk about the power of the signature later, the power of speech in this instance is really important. Everyone is so dependent on Churchill informing them about what's happening and them telling them what to do and how to behave. They need the full stop at the end of his speech uh, as the marker, as the go, rather than the actual signature. And I think that's fascinating, this this, this role that that speech-making has has um acquired acquired during the war and and the speech i think uh, on ve days the real apotheosis of that it's it's um it's just like the final great example of the power of speeches which is all obviously about the power of history because um often it means that what is described as happening or what is told as happening is more important than what's actually happened. Mm. And that's probably the most important lesson a historian can learn and it's all encapsulated brilliantly in this speech. You've got this moment of peace and quiet just before Churchill comes onto the balcony. He then gives a speech, everyone erupts and, and then the party starts. But it wasn't until Churchill told everyone that they could start rocking out that they did.
3: And what's also interesting there is to actually, I think, your point about plotting his day and how mu- how busy he is, how he's moving from one place to another. Um, when you study political figures, um, it's so important to actually look at what they're doing day to day and how they then respond to particular events and how they come up with, with policies. It's very interesting to sort of have a look at the sort of... You know, just the the working nature of politicians. And I remember as a as an undergraduate student and studying the, I did a special paper on Edward the Sixth and Mary the First. And one of the things that I was encouraged to do by uh, the late Cliff Davies, brilliant, brilliant Tudor historian, was to actually make a diary of that period, almost day by day, so that you could actually plot out events as they happened in that kind of way and that it would give you this sort of great sense of of continuity and and how events unfold against other things so it's 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 basically the the chronology being uber detailed and right at the heart of that but I also think it's worth just looking at the rhetoric of Churchill's speech that speech that he gave to the crowds from the Ministry of health balcony and which links us to our history of balconies, is is quite extraordinary in in its rhetoric. I mean, and Churchill must go down in history as one of the great speechwriters. So if you will indulge me, I I will read a, a little extract from it. My dear friends, this is your hour. This is not victory of a party or of any class. It's a victory of the great British nation as a whole. We were the first in this ancient island To draw the sword against tyranny. After a while we were left alone against the most tremendous military power that has been seen. We were all alone for a whole year. Then we stood alone. Did anyone want to give in? The crowd shouts no. Were we downhearted? No, the crowd shouts. The lights went out and the bombs came down but every man, woman and child in the country had no thought of quitting the struggle. London can take it. So we came back after long months from the jaws of death, out of the mouth of hell, while all the world wondered. When shall the reputation and faith of this generation of English men and women fail? I say that in the long years to come, not only will the people of this island, but of the world, Wherever the bird of freedom chirps in human hearts, look back to what we've done and they will say, do not despair, do not yield to violence and tyranny, march straight forward and die if need be unconquered. Now we have emerged from one deadly struggle, a terrible foe has been cast on the ground and awaits our judgment and our mercy." but there is another foe who occupies large portions of the British Empire, a foe stained with cruelty and greed, the Japanese. I rejoice we can all take a night off today and another day tomorrow. Tomorrow our great Russian allies will also be celebrating victory and after that we must begin the task of rebuilding our hearth and homes doing our utmost to make this country a land in which all have a chance, in which all have a duty, and we must turn ourselves to fulfil our duty to our own countrymen and to our gallant allies of the United States, who were so foully and treacherously attacked by Japan. We will go hand in hand with them, even if it is a hard struggle, we will not be the ones who will fail. Absolutely brilliant speech absolutely brilliant
2: yeah and the key i, I love the fact that he makes about japan there um you bear in mind we're talking about victory in europe here it's a pretty obvious point to make but it there has definitely not been victory in the pacific yet in fact they're in the middle of the battle of okinawa yeah I mean, if any of you've seen that wonderful film hacksaw ridge that's happening right now that's literally happening as shakes as um Shakespeare, as churchill is giving his speech so there's a great deal a great deal more to be done
3: yeah, and victory at VJ Day isn't until August of 1945. So there are, you know, quite a few months of hard fighting ahead. And it's actually a mixed day of emotions for people because while this rejoicing and street parties are going on, there are other people who are, as I was saying earlier on, concerned about what is happening abroad. They've got loved ones fighting here, there and everywhere. So despite all this celebration, there are those around the world who are not celebrating. There are widows who are mourning their loved ones. There are mothers who are mourning their sons who have died. There are people who have seen their entire communities destroyed. And for them, yes, it is a relief that war is over, but also there is a sort of sense of morning and that's something that's something to remember that yes this is a time of celebration but also it is a time when people are grieving for what has gone and also as you say there is a real concern about what is happening over in the pacific
2: yeah i i'm interested in a couple of points about about all of this actually and one of them is um churchill's line we were the first in this ancient island to draw the sword against tyranny and I see this as a a time when people have become kind of acutely aware of heroes in history, um, which you can either apply to a really deep history um, or to a very recent history. So people are mourning the loss of their heroes who might have died on D-Day, but at the same time they're being inspired by historical heroes in the past. And Churchill, with his line there, we were the first in this ancient island to draw the sword against tyranny. He's, He's specifically talking about one person. He is specifically talking about King Arthur. Now um, we've actually written a chapter about the role of King Arthur in World War Two. It's absolutely fascinating how um, Churchill is inspired by this man, and he's deliberately chosen Arthur. He's he's a man of exceptional morality and and, and indomitable spirit. He appears. Widely bridging social and cultural divisions in society, he he's known for fighting off invaders. The Germanic invaders is actually what they're specifically referring to. But back back in the mists of history, when King Arthur was around, and it's not just King Arthur that um, is is repeatedly gone back to in film, poetry, um, and speeches like Churchill. Uh, it happens again and again and again with different figures. And I think that some of the footage of VE Day really makes this point home. There are a lot of open spaces in the middle of London, right? So where do they all go? They go to Trafalgar Square. And I don't think they do that by accident. It's a really important part of London. It has been since the, that area of ground was actually cleared in 1838, which itself is a fascinating time. So what's happening in 1838? Well, 1838 is a period when the survivors, the the, the people who actually fought at the battle of trafalgar in 1805 were starting to die there were not very many of them left there was a great concern about history and memory which is why they uh, landscape the entire place they have this competition to design a memorial to nelson and to all the sailors who fought at trafalgar and it's not bombed or attacked in the Second World War. But we do know that in the 1940s, the SS had developed secret plans to take Nelson's column back to Berlin if they had actually been successful in their invasion, which they planned that summer. So for me, it's 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 really important what's going on, where it's going on. Um, just, you know, as with all of these things, you see something happening somewhere, then just ask yourself the question why they're doing it there and not somewhere else. I can think of 10 fantastic open places to go and have a party in the middle of London, right in the middle of London. But they're all either outside Buckingham Palace, up the Mall, through Admiralty Arch, or they're in Trafalgar Square. And it's like that part of London has become a... A physical sort of ge- ge- geographic place to remember. Do you do you have anywhere you go, James, if you need to remember? And I don't mean just like remember what you had for lunch. I mean, I mean to like remember um, important moments in your life or or loved ones who have been lost.
3: I used to, I used to. I've got a very strong connection with St Ives in Cornwall. So we had hmm. family who grew up there, and my grandfather used to go away. My grandfather was orphaned, uh, very. Um, as a very young boy and he and his he and his two brothers um were left and brought up by great aunts and some of their great aunts were lived down in in st ives in cornwall and so we've had a a sort of strong family link to that place uh for a long time and there's a particular walk that i go on uh when i'm there out towards zenna Um, And Man's Head and Clodgy, if any of you know that sort of particular part of the Cornish coastline, that's something that is very special to me and where I go and I I become quite contemplative uh, when I wander out that way. So yes, yes.
2: Yeah and so everyone listening I mean you may have places if you do get in touch tell them where they are it might be a graveside it might be a cliff top it whatever it might be but I'm sure you do and what's happening here on V-Day is something similar but on a national scale so it's national remembrance and it's also important that it happens near Admiralty Arch which is up the other end of the mall Um, So you go through Admiralty Arch. Well, you're not allowed to go through the middle of it because it's reserved for royalty. Um, But you've got other great gates and archways like that in Berlin. You've got the Brandenburg Gate and you've got the Arc de Triomphe in Paris. And these become really important focuses for celebration on VE Day. And they've all actually become really important focuses, symbolic places to commemorate, to celebrate events that are happening in the war. So the Nazis used the Brandenburg Gate to celebrate Hitler's birthday or invading Czechoslovakia or whatever it might be, and Poland. Um, then the Russians used the Brandenburg Gate to celebrate taking Berlin in forty-five. Um, The Nazis are regularly, they march up and down the Champs-Elysees every day for four years, I didn't know this, uh, when they occupy Paris. There's a permanent Nazi presence on the Champs-Elysees and the Arc de Triomphe. And then there's a wonderful photograph of civilians waving flags just in normal clothes, um, streaming down um, through the Arc de Triomphe. It looks like a a kind of a photograph of the Russian, of the French Revolution. It's an amazing photograph, it's my favourite one I've come across from VE Day. And um as what's inspired me to do all of this, of course, is Admiralty Arch um, at the one sort of corner of Trafalgar Square, which is um, a similar sort of a victorious arch setup. It's much uh, more modern than the Brandenburg Gate or the Arc de Triomphe, but it holds a symbolic power um, in in the sort of the geography of
3: london mm-hmm. excellent and I think I think one of the other powerful things to remember is the importance of celebrations today as part of commemorating and as part of remembering and part of the memory of nations you know and a sort of thanksgiving for you know the end of of world war ii and and the sacrifice that so many people made and it's actually there were all sorts of celebrations planned that were going to be very formal and very public and i think a lot of that has been scaled back now but nonetheless what i've been really gladdened to see is the way in which there are attempts to celebrate in a socially distanced way. In fact, in the little cul-de-sac in which I live, there is, on Friday the 8th of May, in the afternoon, going to be a little street party. I'm not sure quite how it's going to work, but I think you're allowed in your own own front garden, uh, and then you can talk to people across hedges and fences. But somebody sent round on the WhatsApp group that we've set up ever since uh lockdown uh something which outlined uh, a 75th uh anniversary celebration join your neighbors in a nationwide stay at home street party prepare for the day by decorating your house in red white and blue and then it gives you time so there's a timetable for this 11am 2 minutes silence on your doorstep 3pm Churchill's speech shown on BBC, I think that's the speech that we were talking about, then grab your picnic blankets or garden table and head to your front garden, 4pm tea and scones or coffee and cake, 6pm dinner and raise your glass to your neighbours, 9pm nationwide sing-along to we'll meet again with the British... With the Royal British Legion after the queen 's address, and then at the bottom it says, "Please remember to follow the social distancing rules um, so it 's it's, it's actually trying to sort of recapture that sort of sense of community spirit that connects us sort of seventy five years apart past with those people who were alive at the time, who would have been celebrating v e day and there 's some brilliant there 's some brilliant material that 's been put out there. Uh, On the internet, English Heritage have produced a whole PDF pamphlet, a VE Day at Home pack that has that has um, that has songs that you can sing, and it's got the lyrics of the Lambeth Walk and White Cliffs of Dover. It's got instructions on how to dance the Lindy Hop. um, If any of you know that dance, it's also got recipes for authentic 1940s rationing style. Uh, treats, ginger beer, lemonade, um, cheese and marmite swirls, and also my favourite, carrot scones. And we have a chapter in our little book on World War Two, which is all about carrots uh, and the way in which carrots were part of rationing uh during this during uh the second world war so there we have it uh the carrot scones what a
2: party james well,
3: i love, I love <laughs> carrot it scones. Le- i'm not
2: i'm not going to come and i'm not going to eat those
3: disgusting sounding scones thank you Le- very much lemon uh, sam <laughs> lemonade cheese and marmite swells and carrot scones what more could you want um and dancing the lindy it's uh, yes. the it's the idea of dancing the lindy hop that's um that's putting you off isn't it
2: Yes. 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 Thank you very much. (laughs) Well,
3: um, um, I hope
2: uh, that those of you who are listening, I I mean, if you go to one of these street parties, let me know how they go. I had no idea it was going to happen. I'm amazed by that. Thank you all for listening, guys. Do check out historiesoftheunexpected.com. Um, we've got a, a uh, Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash historiesoftheunexpected. Any help you can offer us be gratefully received because James and I are spending an enormous amount of time uh, recording at least one episode a day to make sure there is all sorts of homeschooling resources available for kids and teachers. And if you could... Um, find it in yourself to help us out to do that. That would be absolutely brilliant. Otherwise, please find us on social media. Spread the word. I'm on Twitter at Dr.
3: Sam Willis. And I'm on at James Daybell. And the pod is on at Unexpected Pod.
2: So that's it, guys. Um, I hope you enjoyed Be Day. And do please pass on the word. Spread the word about our podcast. It would be hugely appreciated. Bye-bye. Bye, guys.